This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Van Miller. Back in May, I was joined on the show by two climate economists, Granant Wagner and Bruce Usher, both from Columbia University. We looked at the flow of capital going into the four largest sources of renewable energy, hydrogen, nuclear, solar, and wind. As we accelerate towards our net zero future, in 2050, total capital investment necessary to achieve the goal has been estimated at $275 trillion. Where's that coming from? When we spoke to Bruce a couple months ago, he had this to say. The investment is coming primarily from corporate and venture capital, so corporate VC and venture capital, because it is still very early stage, very relatively risky businesses. This is not the world of project finance yet. Today, we get another perspective on the financing for the energy transition. Serge Tisman is Managing Director and Global Head of Clean Energy Transition at City in New York. Is this $275 trillion figure feasible? Serge explains later in the show that it could be $270 trillion, but some have estimated it at 120 or 195. Total spectrum of what's going to happen by 2050 is, you know, the various estimates. I think some estimate at 270 trillion, some at 120, 195. I think in the end of the day, we think this is probably a five trillion per year spend, and we need to get there as soon as we can. In a way, when you're getting to those numbers, the true figures are relevant. We're only at about 1.6 billion a year currently when we need to be at more than 1,000 times that number. More, a lot more, needs to be done. On The Interchange today, we look at the key parts of the big climate policies, such as the IRA or RE Power EU, that are impacting financial institutions. What criteria are investors looking at as they aim to bolster the low carbon economy, create jobs, and fund renewable projects? As you'll hear from Serge later on, it's no longer about debating whether the energy transition is needed or what the right goal is. It's about debating solutions that can be deployed at scale. So how do we get the money to the right places? Let's find out. Serge, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Great to be here. So broadly speaking, before we kind of get into any kind of granular detail, but the energy transition in general and kind of the investor sentiment out there right now, how do you feel the environment is? Are there any kind of key themes you could share with us? Sure. It's a great question that takes a slightly different answer depending on when you ask it over the last couple of years. But I think the overall trend has been extraordinarily positive. And I would probably put in the category of moving from debating what the energy transition is needed or what is the right goal to really debating solutions that could be deployed at scale. And as I look at that, there is sort of a 10% on each side that are, if you will, discussing the systems we want, and the other 10% on the extreme end of the spectrum discussing the system we have, and then the 80% in the middle actually talking about transitioning from A to B. And in my mind, that has been the biggest change over the last two or three years, where the debate has moved in main conversations into that middle of how do we go from A to B versus debating what A should be or what the benefits or challenges of the system that we have today. And what are investors typically looking for? I mean, what are some of the key aspects of energy transition technologies, whether it's wind, solar, grid monetization, or just certain kind of characteristics of some of these companies that are really you know, driving the capital investment? Yeah, as I think about the energy transition, it's a technology-driven evolution, if you will, of 
transforming our energy systems while we're using it. So like many industries that go through a technological innovation, they have to go through a venture capital cycle. They have to prove the science. And in this ecosystem like energy transition, you also have to think about deploying those technologies at scale and with speed. So if you step back at about energy transition broadly and think about 2050 goals, it's already hard for people to relate to a goal in 2050, although that's just been picked as an interim period where we have to be arguably carbon neutral on a net basis, but then continue to decrease carbon emissions overall. And so I think you go through, depending on the industry and depending on the solution, the investor focus changes a little bit. The venture capital still looks for opportunities to fundamentally change either the fuel or emission or the way we consume energy. And it goes beyond energy, it goes into plastic and all the various products and services that fossil fuel industry allowed us to enjoy at very low cost to those that are looking at deploying in scale, looking at returns. Ultimately, from a private capital perspective, everyone competes for a capital, whether it's new energy, old energy, consumer, or retail. And so ultimately, returns have to get to the right place where the capital looks at the opportunity and feels like the risk reward is appropriate relative to other opportunities that are available. Do you think there's any sacrificing of returns for green initiative, or do you think returns are still king? Yeah, I think there are certainly some pockets of capital and corporate capital that is willing to pay what seemingly a very high price for certain services or goods, but I'm putting them in the category of them providing capital to scale up technologies. These are relatively small volume opportunities, and for them and for those investors and corporations, this is really accelerating access to those technologies at scale. By the time you get to scale, it has to be economic. Look, we have a lot of companies and industries, broadly speaking, in the global economy that have low profit margins, right? And so if you are looking at the business that has 10, 15% profit margin, there's only so much premium you could pay for quote unquote, the benefit for the planet. Ultimately, we need a pathway to profitability of those companies that rely on better feedstock, better input, but the economics need to make sense. And so I put again in the category of certain companies, especially technology companies have been leading it. They will invest or support a lot of these companies at relatively small amounts, but nominally high prices. But I think there's an overarching goal here to allow those companies to scale up and instead of taking something 20 years to develop, can you accelerate to make it 10 or six or seven? I mean, on that, you know, the total capital investment to reach net zero by 2050 is kind of estimated to be around 275 trillion. Do you think that that's feasible, you know, kind of where we are right now? And, and where do you think that capital primarily is going to be coming from? Well, great question. And again, this is in the total spectrum of what's going to happen by 2050. As you know, there are various estimates. I think some estimate at $270 trillion, some at $120, $195. I think in the end of the day, we think this is probably $5 trillion per year spend. And we need to get there as soon as we can. According to EIA, we were at 1.6 or 1.7 billion this year. Bloomberg has slightly less number. Woodmac probably has a slightly different number. But the trend has been fairly consistent. The total clean energy spending around the world have been growing at a faster rate than fossil fuels. Now, we're not going to just magically change the system overnight, and we're going to need a long tail for fossil fuel to deliver energy that is dependable and affordable for quite some time. But I think the ratio of spending and capital will continue to tilt towards the clean energies where between the capital deployed that has 
a great demand and the government support that is critical in enabling some of these technologies to scale up and produce lower costs and make the economic models possible, that ratio will continue to grow. So in some forecasts, the ratio is less about, or the forecast, I should say, is less about the amount, but what is the ratio of fossil fuel to non-fossil fuel? And we are probably at one to one or one to one and a half today on a global basis, and that probably needs to go to one to four and at some point one to 10. Now, that can go one of two ways. If we quickly find ways to reduce emissions in fossil fuel, maybe we don't need to replace all the fuels. If we have some transformational technologies that could be deployed quickly and at scale, perhaps some of the capital will find, again, returns and some of those opportunities that are in a clean energy space versus the traditional energy space. So I think it's the question of how much capital and what energy systems we're going to develop and how we're going to transition from that A to B, the system we have today and the energy system we want to have in 2050 and beyond. Obviously, that takes a number of different pieces of the problem, right? You need the capital investment, you need consumer support, and then obviously you need regulatory and, and government support. So we've got the IRA that was passed and, and seems to be making an impact. What are your overall thoughts on the IRA and how it's been impacting capital investment in the energy transition? Well, it's been a great impact so far, although some of the guidance that needs to come out for implementation is still coming out of the IRS. The bill passed with quite few interpretations that need to come out. You have seen a lot of announcements, both domestically and from international players, bringing supply chain into the U.S. market. In many ways, as you know, when the Germany in the past passed the uh, law for or incentives for the solar and wind, there were really no incentives for local supply chain. And so most of the European companies went out of business and most of the supply came from China because the economics, you know, going back to the first point, if you could buy the same product cheaper, you're always going to get to that point. So th there's quite a lot of incentives for both businesses that had questions about the economics longer term and those that need to have the government enabled but private capital led deployment. And I think that's the difference between US government policies and European, for example, where US, broadly speaking, has this concept of private capital lab, government enabled, right? So government needs to enable, but private capital still need to build it, still needs to deploy it, and still needs to use the government capital in order to either get to bankability, where you can go to the regular banking business, bond business, and private and public capital, or to scale up opportunities that allow the cost to come down in line with some of the other cost learnings that we've seen in wind, solar, manufacturing broadly, and so forth. So it's been a great impact. We still have to see some of this capital being used. I guess as the tech cycle will come to next year, we'll see some of the first applications and usage. But it's been a great impact so far. And as you've seen, Europe has been very busy in trying to come up with the response that makes them competitive on some of the clean energy technologies that are looking at US where, number one, the regulations oftentimes at the federal level and not you know some state level, but it's not as complicated as the European Union where you have EU regulation and then individual countries. And then it's very much supply oriented. So you could look at building facilities and producing products and services and getting the cost to be at the level where you can compete with the consumers of those products relative to fossil fuel or other alternatives. So it's been great to see, but it will take us a couple of years to see a full impact. But judging by announcements, it's certainly been recognized around the world as as a very attractive place to invest in clean energy technologies and products and services. In being in a 
inflationary environment right now. I mean, the Fed's recently signaled a pause or intend to pause on the rate side, but obviously that's got to impact the investment and the growth in the energy transition. What are your thoughts on the overall impact of where we are in the rate environment and what would need to happen to help encourage further investment? I think clean energy in this particular case is no different than any other industry. Cost of capital went up. This applies to services and products and manufacturing across the entire global GDP. Uh, So this industry is no different. I think perhaps the risk appetite has changed a little bit where in the past, uh, sitting on cash was earning you no return. And now you can get on short-term basis, a long-term basis, you know, something higher. So the threshold for investment might have gone up in a little bit different way than the attitude was probably 18 months ago. But I don't think there's a specific impact on clean energy from the right environment. Now, they certainly, the industry overall certainly benefited from very low cost of capital the last three, four, five years where the capital was looking at returns and adjusting for the risk appetite. So that certainly has been an impact, but I don't believe the rates per se having necessarily a direct impact, broadly speaking. Now, there will be you know, certain products and services that were looking for 5% yield on certain renewable developments where you can get something close to that in treasuries. So that might adjust some of those capital flows. Uh, but broadly speaking, this is a multi-decade trend It will take us many years and many decades to transform the energy systems and the ecosystems around them to something that provides lower emission overall. And people looking at it that way, the rates will be all kinds of uh, levels between now and 2050. Have you seen any companies starting to maybe delay growth plans for the reason maybe that they want to access long-term capital in the bond market, but given where rates are right now, that they're maybe holding out a little bit until rates come down a bit? That's, again, beyond clean energy, I think that's broadly, you've seen the bond market be down last year, but the market is coming back. And we've seen a couple of uh, offshoots of green offshoots and equity market as well. I think as people come to a bit of a consensus of what the Fed policy is going to be and what the rate environment is going to be around the world, I think some of those markets continue to be open. And look, again, people are looking at long-term financing and it's a bit difficult to answer the question you know, certainly if you had the opportunity to raise money at higher rate versus lower rate, you always take lower rate. But at this point, you look at your needs on the balance sheet, your maturities, your capital needs, and you find the best way to finance projects. And again, in energy transition, these are multi-decade projects, right? These are not two-year projects. These are projects that's supposed to, uh, you're building facilities and infrastructure that will support your GDP around the world for the next couple of 50, 100 years, right? You mentioned earlier supply chain. One of the things that I've mentioned a number of times on this podcast is with the energy transition, a lot of these technologies and products tend to go down to the same raw materials. So there's been a little bit of a supply chain crunch. What are your thoughts on that alleviating anytime soon? Or do you think we're going to continue, at least in the near term, having these supply chain issues as we're looking to kind of grow these different renewable technologies? Great question. I think it's very important, especially if you start thinking about what the SICA system looks like in 2040 and 50 and what the supply chain needs to be in place to produce either services or goods or continue to manufacture. And you can pick your sub-segment on this. And I, I believe like in many industries that kind of developed over the last 20, 30, 40 years, supply chain is being developed at the same time. This isn't new for this industry specifically. If you think about combined cycle power plant using natural gas, the first one was put in place, I think, in the early 70s. Today, it's 20, 22, 23% of electricity. So it took us quite a bit of time to get to the same, you know, to this level. 
uh, supply chain develop along the same way. Minerals, metals and mining, recycle and circle economy is certainly a key part of it. And there are good examples. If you look at the current batteries in cars, lead acid batteries, there's no primary source in Europe. These are all fully circular businesses that are being collected, recycled, and metals are going back. You see in this uh, trend being set up and encouraged by DOE and international governments on EV batteries and batteries from other devices. I think there is a big effort on the metals and mining broadly in a couple of categories, expanding the resources. So they're making the economics attractive and possible for resources that we know what they are, but the concentration, for example, is too low. And so you can really today with the current technology effectively extract those minerals and then also providing technology that allows, you know, for some of the other sources that have not been used in the past to be used quite effectively. So if you look at lithium, which is getting quite a bit of airtime and conversation, some of the recovery from spent water by oil and gas, some of the um, direct lithium extraction technologies that are going from what really looks like environmental and friendly, oftentimes very complicated and really geography-specific opportunities to becoming much more prevalent and cost-effective to extract lithium from other locations and sources like brine water that historically just wasn't necessarily economically incentivized to put the venture capital and the risk capital, the science, to figure out the way to do it. And that is across various minerals and products. First, to set up the supply chain, and then, as you probably know, this has also been very commonly discussed, in many of those minerals and supply chain on raw materials, whether the production or refining right now goes through China. And so you create uh, quite a bit of dependency as you scale up. And so there's a big effort to diversify, putting aside incentives in various governments, but in general, to diversify your sources. And you're right. We've actually talked to a number of technologies on this podcast that are investing in making it more cost efficient and quicker to develop the raw materials into whether it's battery storage, increased lithium production, you name it. You know, since kind of post pandemic levels, we've seen an increase in investment in energy. It seems like both upstream and, and power and renewables has had an outsized portion of that. So while metals and mining is continuing to grow, it's at, albeit a lower scale than power generation and upstream. Do you think we need to incentivize more investment into the metals and mining space, given the fact that we could have shortages of some of these rare minerals for the energy transition products, like I said, whether it be solar panels or battery storage? Incentives are certainly part of it, and we have some of those in the IRA, as you know, where some of the incentives are, are subject to supply chain and better recycling and better reprocessing and some of the materials being produced locally or in the countries that are part of the free trade agreement or otherwise. Uh, so there are already incentives. I think technology needs to catch up and we need to um, pilot some of the stuff at scale and figure out where you could deploy it in a big way. There's a big effort from DOE in this country and Again, some of the agencies in Europe and in Asia and China in setting up recycling businesses, thinking about batteries as we go in and continue to grow delivery of EV vehicles. While it's, there's still a debate on what the life of those batteries is and whether there's a second life scenario, certainly recovering primary mineral materials from those batteries is likely to be a quite big business. And in many of the forecasts, that is probably one of the largest sources of lithium, for example, in 2040, 2050 is really just collecting batteries that have been used on a previous generation and recovering it. So part of it will have to be circular, part of it will have to be expanding resources that are available to economically extract those minerals. And part of it is going to be building a facility. It's not just about extraction. Oftentimes it's about refining and actually making it into usable products. So it's, it's going to be a combination of those. 
Some more incentives are good, but ultimately, I still believe that all of these products have to get on a pathway to parity and provide ultimate products and services that are economically attractive to people and businesses that does not require a consistent green premium. That is, in many ways, what I think the role of the governments is in this ecosystem is to allow people to build up and scale up businesses and perhaps allow for the initial high cost of production to be subsidized, but over time, they need to get to a parity. That's a great point. I mean, recycling will definitely be a technology that will continue to develop and improve, but we don't have the supply yet because we're not far enough down the road of the energy transition to really make it scalable to one of your earlier points. So as we get maybe five, 10 years down the road, you've got the supply, technology is developed, and then that will help supply the energy transition to meet the goals of 2050. That's right. And it doesn't have to be these. I mean, almost every device eventually will have some sort of battery, at least even now. And so a lot of those batteries could be collected in the same way and recycled for some of the other uses, uh, personal consumer electronic devices, you know, watches, headphones, microphones, you know, everything we use for this podcast. There's just a lot of batteries everywhere, different chemistries. As we develop the next ecosystem and the energy system, I think that's one of the core principles is that coming up with a more circular way where as you think about all of the labor and efforts and technology that goes to produce a lot of products that then end up in the landfill. Uh, so I think there'll be a lot of offshoots of circular economy that will recycle some of the products that we use and you won't always need to create brand new materials and refine them in a certain way. Although that will continue to be part of it depending on how quickly we can transition to uh, this new energy ecosystem. Switching over to the public equity markets, what is driving valuations for some of these clean tech companies today? Is it, to your earlier point, the ability to get to scale, or are there other factors involved on kind of where their multiples are at? Well, as you know, as we went into last year, I think there's been a broad rotation out of growth equity into more defensive position as rates went up, as the risk profile changed, and you had some separation in renewable companies that do more of a wind and solar and perhaps, you know, CNI, wind and solar that have businesses today. And those haven't really seen as much of a contraction in price. What really have caught attention of the press in a way, and I've seen quite a big contraction are those that are more longer dated. You know, they might be shipping products, they might be shipping services, they might have a facility, but they still need to build two, three, four, five more, and they might have the technology. But as you know, Anytime you build any piece of infrastructure, it will take you two to three years. And maybe three years could become two and a half years. But for those years, you update is I build pre-walls and I put the equipment and I'm now commissioning and I'm automating and it's going to be better. And I think a lot of investors basically lighten their exposure by saying, this is great, but if the real inflection point is 2027 and 28, for the time being, where the mindset of the risk is off, I need to go to more defensive dividend paying and more established plays or even go to cash or you know, other securities or private equity, where the argument for why I need to be in these types of equities today is a little bit tougher. Now, you also have a number of companies that are capital intensive, and those also became a little bit less in favor because the view has been that you're going to need to raise capital that to your earlier point is going to be more expensive now than it has been. And so we need to wait and reassess the risk as we understand what this new environment will do to the economics of projects. So I think it's, it's been broadly in line with the high growth companies being out of favor. And we're seeing some offshoots of people coming back. And again, thematically, no one's really in our conversation. Thematically, people are not moving away from energy transition. I think the debate is not whether we should do it or not. But the debate is 
visibility within a couple of years is a lot more important than it was before. A public investor specifically want to look at 18, 24 months at most. They want to see what the inflection points are. They want to see deployment of some of these uh, and acceptance by customers. But there's not been any retractment or reduction, if you will, on the interest in energy transition. People still fundamentally believe that we are in a process of transitioning from the system we have to the system we all target. We can all debate the pace and how many unplanned twists and turns will take, but this is taking place, right? So just really a much more selective environment from the investor standpoint. Correct. I mean, we've talked to a couple of investors and we do a kind of a survey and I think profitability, understanding when the business is profitable at the corporate level, not at unit economics, understanding unit economics, understanding how much capital you need, all of the typical things that you would expect investors to focus on, all of that just got a little more heightened. And so as you look at the allocation of capital and portfolios they had, which broadly came down, as you recall, Last year was a bit of an anomaly where both equity and bond markets were down, where typically you'd have an offset and you have these portfolio allocations from investors that would do equity or cash or debt and they would unbalance, but you know the equity market was down, the, the bond portfolio was down. And so I think the allocation and the target for investment got a little bit more heightened in terms of where do I need to be now? And that applied to both private and public companies. Is the high rate environment right now impacting the private equity firms in terms of getting their desired returns in some of these investments? Yeah, look, private equity generally, like I, I would say if you go back two years, there was a bit of a overlap between the venture capital, the growth capital, and the private equity, and they all overlap in some categories. And I think there was a broadly theme of, look, I just want to invest in good companies. I don't really care if they're public or private or semi-public. I think we've seen people going back to their core competencies a lot more. And so the private equity is still looking at businesses that are established, but absolutely look, the rates, financing any acquisition, if you're putting leverage on at the previous rates versus current rates is different. But I also believe in the last three years, a lot of companies have gotten significantly more efficient. Have you seen companies that have an energy transition decarbonization strategy trade at higher multiples for an equivalent company that doesn't necessarily have a decarbonization strategy? I mean, is the market giving them the benefit for that? I think there's been a broadly consistent premium on disruptors versus legacy businesses. I think that probably applies to some of the energy transition companies, but I think the scale is quite different. So it's very tough to compare. So, you know, companies that are in CNI solar had businesses for many years and they're supplying to it and they're growing and, you know, they traded the premium to more industrial companies. Uh, companies that were promising sustainable packaging were valued at a higher businesses than some of the other ones. So I think EVs, you know, Tesla might be an outlier, but I think that's what everybody always puts in this category that, you know, why can't it be applied to all of the subsectors? So I think broadly speaking today, I guess the premium is still on profitability and growth and companies that have a path to profitability generally are expected in this space to see higher growth. We have seen total spending globally grow at a faster rate than some of the legacy businesses. And that's driven by many factors. Look, all of the conversation the last six months have been around AI that isn't free. Every time you make a search, it costs something. There's servers everywhere. They need power. They need power that's space load consistent. They want it to be green. There's only so much you could do with wind and solar. If we assume AI is going to take any role that people are forecasting, data centers 
could account for 20 plus percent of worldwide electricity demand. That also encourages those companies and investors to find opportunities that will be able to build some clean electrons to support all of these uh, demand and electricity from a single category that's unrelated in show to energy transition, right? This isn't replacing cars or fuels or planes. This is just the incremental demand. Then you add the demographic trends in terms of where we expect that population and what that population needs to have in terms of energy or access to water that requires energy or desalination, you pick it. There's quite a lot of very strong trends that will continue to drive companies that are able to prove that technology and scale it. Very importantly, it has to be at scale with some speed, we'll continue to see quite attractive growth in their profile. You know, one of the challenges that I've seen has been some conflicting interests in the lending space for energy transition companies. I mean, we talked about the IRA, so you've got some government incentives. But on the banking side, you've got banks that have come out with lending guidelines on you know how much they want to put towards the industry, but banks are regulated. Right. So you've got the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, who regulates these banks from a, a loan risk standpoint. So a lot of these emerging companies have risk profiles that meet certain guidelines by the OCC where the banks have to allocate more capital or reserve more capital to lend to them. And you know, some banks I've talked to, they've had challenges being able to lend to these companies because of the OCC guidelines. I mean, is that a challenge that you're finding overall in the lending environment? And, and if so, what can you do to overcome that? Yeah, I'll, I'll stay away from details of regulators, but I think broadly speaking, a lot of early growth companies are just not sort of, and if you go back to, again, not to overuse the US example, but if you look at the policy out of DOE loan program office, right? There's this concept of bankability. And you need to get to a point where you become a bankable business in a bankable industry. And that applies to any industry. Clean energy is not an exception or a separate rule. Every industry had to go through some evolution, some scale up, and oftentimes it was done without banks' participation. And then at some point, banks come into it. This industry has many, many segments that are still early in many cases, for banks to support them with traditional loans, which is in part what DOE LPL is doing, right, is getting them to bankability. And, you know, the different numbers that people use in terms of what that means. Uh, so I don't know if I would say it's a specific regulation where the risk appetite of the bank is inconsistent necessarily with what regulators are saying, but banks are supposed to play a certain role and they need to lend money for projects they expect to be paid back and that project needs to be a certain risk. And I would say in this broad energy transition, there is a very long and broad category of sectors that are building first of a kind facility, whether it's manufacturing or production of any molecule or electron. And first of a kind, by definition, you know, will be more expensive and not as economic than the second of a kind and then this concept of nth of a kind. And everybody has a definition of how many they need to build before you get to the same point as building a regular oil refinery. And this goes in the full broad spectrum of sometimes it's a brand new technology that just hasn't operated for many hours or at this scale. Sometimes people put together pieces of technology that have been tested in different configurations, but you know, it hasn't been done this way. I think decarbonizing many processes could use technology and science that existed for many years, but it's never been done with the concept of managing carbon in the process. So you're redesigning things and you're putting them together in a way that banks or private capital will say, I understand the individual components, but I'd like to see all of it work together and maybe all of it work together for 10,000 hours. 
And then by the time you build two or three, you become a lot more bankable and eligible for some of those uh, loans. Now, having said that, there is venture debt and there's other debt products that in some cases allow them to improve liquidity. But in many cases, I don't think it's necessarily regulators and banks do make exception and they do have part of the capital that's available outside of those, but it's a relatively small capital. As you said, it requires additional capital to be held back. And like everything else in energy transition, things need to make economic sense. So I, I would say it's just the broad industry need to evolve into a more bankable state. I think LPO has been very active in doing that in the US. There are other incentives and in private entities that are trying to support some of the scale up. And I think that one of the biggest goals for a lot of those incentives is to move this industry and sectors into a bankable position where you could raise project debt for hydrogen projects similar to what LNG is doing today. But as you remember, LNG started in 60s and 70s and that there was no project debt before. And perhaps hydrogen isn't going to start and take 40 years, but we're going to need to have some evolution of this project financing and bank financings that's available for the big infrastructure build out. Now, there's a very strong interest in doing it. I can tell you, as you know, from various commitments and from net zero goals and just in general, but we just need to get to some of the evolution of new projects and new developments and continue to increase uh, the financial services industry involvement uh, at the right time to support the build out. You know, given we're in a, a technology-driven industry, right? I mean, we've got new technologies coming up that are new, better, more cost-effective. You would expect eventually the M&A market to be pretty hot uh, with people, larger companies, buying up these smaller ones or brand new technologies that can really be impactful. Do you anticipate an active M&A environment going forward in the energy transition? Absolutely. And I think it will be within the energy transition and from the I don't want to say traditional, but from outside of companies that are exclusively focus on this, I think it falls both in the category of technologies that people can deploy on a broader basis and projects and infrastructure that's being built by some of the entrepreneurs and private equity backed or private capital backed teams. But if you look at the technology in the early 90s, there were many, many companies that were pursuing different segments of the business that was just connected by the fact that the personal computer or mainframe was being used. And that evolved into very different segments today that are still captured by technology. So I look at energy transition in a similar way. There's many, many segments and sub-segments that are focused primarily on reducing, abating, or substituting processes or infrastructure that reduces emission. Right? We don't have an energy problem, we have an emission problem. So we don't have to replace all of the sources of energy, we need to address emission. There will be companies that will become quite large in many of those segments that will consolidate probably some of the technologies. There will be companies outside of segments today that will look at that as an opportunity. I would also say that as you look at some of the other industrial ecosystems, oftentimes they start with the technology solution or technology product, but over time they develop to a solution provider. And so if you think about any of those segments, in some categories you could be providing a certain type of storage, but over time, presumably, you're going to be less focused on the chemistry of the battery. But really, what is the use case and can I provide the best storage solution that gives you the right duration, the right cost, the right physical properties, the right feedstock? And so I would imagine my expectation over time, there will be a series of these waves that people will consolidate into larger companies to get economies of scale or technology collaboration or integration of supply chain. The second point I would make is the technologies in clean energy have to be deployed. They all have to be deployed at scale. 
And I think it's very, very challenging for some of the early stage or smaller companies that are building one or two facilities to go to 100 countries. And so there'll need to be partnerships and evolution and perhaps at some point acquisitions by those companies that will deploy those technologies that are you know, synergistic with other products and services they provide today on a global scale. Yeah, we've talked to a number of emerging technology companies on this show that, given sometimes lack of ability to access the growth capital companies, they've uh, joined partnerships with larger corporations. And that's where they have really been able to build to scale. So do you see that part of it also being a critical piece over the early stages of the energy transition to kind of help accelerate the scaling up of some of these technologies? Absolutely. We refer to it as the three S's, science, scale, and speed. And so a lot of the Technology companies, by definition, focus on the science and perhaps the applicability of scale. But to do scale and speed, you're going to need large partners, which is going to take too long. And those partners could be in acquisition form, partnership form, collaboration form, you know, all the various forms that you've seen other industries have gone over the last 40, 50 years. So there's a lot of different technologies out there that people are talking a lot about. I mean, you've got the staples of, of wind, solar that have been around a while, but you've got hydrogen, you've got carbon capture, geothermal, a, a number of things that are emerging. Are there any that you're pretty excited about or you see as really making an impact over the next five years? Next five years, that's a bit of a short time frame in this business, I think, since if you're not building it today, it's probably not coming online until 26 or 27. So if it doesn't exist today and you're not actually building up walls and making a facility, you're probably already five years out. Okay, I think there is a lot of technologies that are very exciting. I think they're all addressing slightly different challenges. And I think you have to go back to what would be the system, David, you design if you had a blank piece of paper today, right? And if you ignore, for example, some of the transitions. You know, so there are some companies that would be extraordinarily impactful on the efficiency side. In many ways, the cleanest molecule or the cleanest electron out there is the one you never use. So getting more efficiencies in the system would be great, you know, grid distribution. Uh, hydrogen is viewed as today with the current technology as the answer to a lot of hard to decarbonize high temperature applications. It will still take some time if you're not going to the final investment decision this year. You're not shipping or producing hydrogen probably till 26 at this point. So it will take some time. I would say today in the more immediate application, hydrogen is in the early innings, but it's quite exciting. A lot of policy support around the world to uh, scale it up, to build infrastructure. Nuclear is uh, quite an important part of the on-demand baseload solution. Uh, wind and solar can go only so far until we get long duration storage to be quite available and quite cheap. I think geothermal, in theory, would be one of the most impactful technologies. It just hasn't attracted as much capital. Just think about decarbonizing all the coal power plants. If you could, in theory, drill a well deep enough anywhere in the world and have the right heat transfer, you'd literally just take the balance of plant connection to the grid, just take out the, um, you know, the coal part of the plant and just put a, a big well and get the balance of the plant to work the same way and you have clean energy everywhere. I think uh, longer term... Fusion has been capturing people's attention, but again, that's a longer term. That's definitely not five or 10 years. It's hopefully it's by the middle of next decade, we'll have you know the first plan, but those are still going to have to go through the same iterations as all other technologies. I think these are more on the infrastructure piece. I think EVs will continue to get better and better as densities go up and we get more charging infrastructure. So there's a lot of services that are probably more to enable current technologies. But I think that would be my categories. I think carbon capture is another one, although 
we'll have to see how that develops around the world. There'll certainly be a big push early on, and most of the forecast by 2050, you really can't get there without a quite significant carbon uh, capture and perhaps sequestration. In my personal mind, I'd rather see utilization of that carbon for other uses than just sequestering it in um, below ground. But there'll be a mix of both. And you're right. I mean, it's a long journey. But to your point at the beginning of this podcast, one of the things that you've seen different over the past couple of years is the people not pushing off and saying, oh, well, it's 2050 target. We've got time. It's people realizing that they need to take action now, mainly because of the long lead time. Like you said, if you're not building it now, you're not going to be an impactful until 2026. Listen, Serge, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and giving us your insight on what's going on in the uh, capital markets, M&A markets, and the energy transition in general. This is something I could talk hours with you about. So really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm David Miller, and this is The Interchange Recharged. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions for topics we should look at on future episodes. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Interchange Show. See you next time.